In recent years, there's been a sustained effort to revitalise Aboriginal cultural practices in the northern tablelands of New South Wales. Callum Clayton Dixon is a linguist and historian and a founding member of the Anawan Language Revival Program. He is currently undertaking his doctoral studies on decolonising the Anawan language. He is also the author of Surviving New England, a history of Aboriginal resistance and resilience through the first 40 years of the colonial apocalypse. I caught up with Callum early last year and began by asking him about the reaction to his new book. The response has been really positive. We've gotten rid of and distributed well over one and a half thousand copies of the book, mostly in the local area in New England and especially in the Armidale area. And we've had a lot of positive feedback from members of the local community, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, about the book and I guess opening people's eyes as to what the nature of relations between Aboriginal people and the squatocracy and the colonists during those early decades of the colonial occupation here on the Tableland, the nature of frontier conflict, what happened in terms of the decline in numbers of the Aboriginal population and what caused that, uh, all those sorts of things. And I think it's working towards opening up another conversation about where we go from here in terms of potentially frontier war memorials and conversations hopefully about access to country that's been locked up by pastoralism for decades and decades, if not well over a century, things like that, and even conversations about reparations. Often when the sorts of histories that you've written about in your book are spoken about, there is, as you say, that can change a conversation, but there's often pushback as well. Is there a growing acceptance of the history in the local area that you've seen, or has there also been a little bit of resistance to the stories that you're trying to tell? I actually haven't come across any sort of negative comments, at least not that I've been told of or heard in person or anything like that. But that's not to say that there isn't negative things being said behind closed doors. But surprisingly, people who are belong to old New England pastoral families or people of farmers in more kind of contemporary times have been very open to the content of the book and I guess wanting to learn more about local Aboriginal history and culture and a few of my cousins who've been out doing survey work on pastoral properties in the area have said that the farmers that they've come across and interacted with in the area have been really, really interested in, in learning more about local Aboriginal history and the history of what went on on those big old pastoral runs. It's great to see that kind of engagement with history, and especially coming from your work. Your current project, a lot of your focus now is on rebuilding your own language. From your perspective, why is language regeneration so important? Well, I think I started out thinking about language revitalisation as a bit of a kind of like a portal or a window into the revitalisation of other aspects of culture and traditional practice. Like it's not just about the language and the words itself. It's about how that gives us a window into traditional Aboriginal worldviews and principles and practices and how it can be re-embedded and reintegrated into other practices that have been revived on our country here, uh, such as song and dance, we weaving, carving, any of those sorts of things. So it's not just something that exists in isolation. It's kind of like a a glue or a web that can connect with and help connect with these other aspects of culture and traditional practice that are being revived as well. From the work that you're doing, what transformations have you seen as people and communities reconnect with their language? 
Well, back in October, November 2018, the Animal Language Rubble Program held our first ever community language classes. And that saw a group of about 20 people, uh, members of the local Aboriginal community, attend classes over four weeks, four Sundays, uh, a couple of hours each time. And people of all age groups, from five-year-olds all the way to people in their 70s and 80s, were able to engage in this language learning or relearning process. And it was really amazing because after just two or three classes, we had some of the kids who were, I think, only about eight, and there was, there was two, there was one girl, one boy, one who was eight and one was 11, get up and teach the first week's worth of content to people who were coming in a bit later on in the on the track and that included teaching their great uncle and things like that and watching that kind of process of young people taking on language relearning in a really really prideful way in a way that they were willing to step up and be a part of that process in a really really involved active way uh, listening to you speak about that experience it's really clear why the process of language regeneration is important and important to a community. But what drew you to the project of rebuilding the dictionary? I guess what drew me to language revitalisation in the first place was, I think, when I used to attend rallies in Brisbane and a couple of my mates would get up and introduce themselves in Gamilaroi. And I thought, I want to be able to do that one day. And I think that was one of the early kind of things that set me on a path to becoming really interested and involved in in language. And then I I think it was back in 2014 that I ordered from IATSIS one of the only surviving audio recordings of our language. And that, I think, began my journey into archival language reclamation and utilising records in the colonial archive that have been made by linguists and anthropologists and squatters who had remembered words when they were growing up on stations back in the 1840s and 1850s here in New England and utilising those records to breathe new life into a, a language that had been dormant from the 1950s or prior. So tell us about the process then that you're going through in terms of trying to collate all of the material for a dictionary. It seems like an overwhelming process to go through. So what are the steps? How, how do you actually approach something so large? Well, I guess the first stage was to track down all of the available archival records, including both published and unpublished uh, source materials, such as the field notes of R.H. Matthews or the field notes of anthropologist A.R. Radcliffe-Brown, and then pulling all of, all of those materials together that have been collected from places like IATSIS, the National Library of Australia, University of Sydney Archives, the Archives and Library here at the University of New England, and other sorts of repositories around New South Wales and ACT. And then pulling all of those records together, transcribing them all into Word documents, and then compiling all of those into a kind of lexical database. And then from there, working on trying to analyse and get the most out of the orthographies, the spelling systems utilised by each of the recorders, because there's only two or three of the recorders 
such as a German linguist, Gerhard Laves, in 1929, who recorded some Manawan language, A.R. Radcliffe-Brown and Christopher Court in 1963, and then Bill Hodnot, who recorded a few Manawan words in the 60s as well. They were the only ones who actually used the International Phonetic Alphabet or a variation of it to record the language, whereas R.H. Matthews, F.J. Buchanan, who grew up on Rimbanda Station and picked up language there, people like them and William Gardner and others all use completely different ways of representing the sounds of our language. So it's really become a matter of trying to figure out exactly what types of sounds they were using. And so that's involved a process and continues to involve a process of looking at the work of other linguists who worked on neighbouring languages or other New South Wales Aboriginal languages to see what they've said about, oh, when R.H. Matthews uses this particular letter or this particular pair of letters, then he's trying to represent this particular sound there. So it's quite a detective kind of game or detective kind of work involved in trying to really get the most out of and most accurately reclaim the words out of the archive in the most accurate way possible so we're not butchering the unique sounds of our language. That sounds like such a complex, intricate process. But I was also interested that you said earlier on that where some of the sources of those words came from. And they weren't just linguists, but other people who were writing down words that they were hearing, Europeans hearing those words and recording them. And I was wondering, from your perspective in doing this work, what sort of process do you do to make sure that what they're thinking they're understanding in terms of hearing language is actually the right interpretation of the words they're hearing? Well, in, in our case, because Anerwin and the other dialects of our language have been so poorly recorded, we have really very few records to rely on. So in, in other cases with languages like Gumbangir on the coast or Gimilaroi out west, you've got a far greater body of language data to work with in terms of comparing what different recorders heard and how they chose to represent it. Whereas with ours, you do get that in some cases. For instance, I was just looking yesterday at the word that had been recorded for moon and it had been recorded by three different people, R.H. Matthews, um, this doctor who was living in Gleninus, John McPherson and F.J. Buchanan, the squatter on Rimbanda Station. And they'd all recorded it slightly different but you could tell that they were all recording the same word. But R.H. Matthews seemed to have picked up something that the other two didn't because he had experience with recording quite a number of Aboriginal languages. I think he recorded something like 53 different Aboriginal languages across Southeast Australia. So he noticed this other kind of sound that was in there, this retroflex consonant, whereas the other two didn't. And I'm thinking that's because they didn't uh, have nearly as much experience with Aboriginal languages as Matthews did. So I guess it's like quite a an in-depth investigative process of trying to look really intricately at all these different kind of orthographic spelling conventions that each of the recorders have used and trying to get the most out of them. Is there a connection between the process of regeneration of language, of the community coming together and going through the process of learning and, and sharing their collective knowledge of the language with the process of truth-telling? So the book Surviving New England actually came out of, I guess, the language research because we were constantly being asked by people, oh, well, why do you guys only have a few hundred words recorded? Why haven't you had speakers for decades and decades? Whereas there's been speakers up until much more recently or still today of languages like Gumbanga and 
Gamilaroi and, and other neighbouring languages. Why is it that your language seems to have, quote-unquote, died out much earlier? So I started looking into that and what came out of that research, which ended up producing Surviving New England, was that there were a number of factors, including the absolute flooding of the tableland with livestock and colonists, which set about a process of forcing Aboriginal people into much closer and more regular contact with English-speaking colonists than in other areas. So with 500,000 sheep up on the tableland within just 10 years of the colonial occupation beginning, you have the depletion of native food resources, forcing Aboriginal people into a position of having to either go and kill livestock, which then brings the wrath of the vigilante colonists and border police, etc., or going on to stations and working for rations, therefore coming into much more regular contact with white people who refuse to learn the local language. So the process of language decline or our language being forced into dormancy really began back during that early period of the, the colonial occupation. And so looking at those factors such as the influx of livestock and colonists into a region during those early years, whereas people often think that language was forced into dormancy or forced into sleep as a result of the protection era and the welfare board era where language was essentially banned. But that process really began decades and decades earlier and the protection era and the welfare board era really was what kind of finished off the language and sent it into that kind of final stage of dormancy. But that process began long, long before that. Callum, I asked you earlier about what the impact of the regeneration has been on community members and the community itself. I just finally this evening, in doing this project and going through all of the intricate work that's involved in it, what do you hope the legacy of the work will be? Yeah, I guess my hope is that the dictionary and the grammar, the language knowledge book, becomes a, I guess, a foundation for a sustained community language revitalisation effort, where eventually we're looking at a situation where our language is once again spoken on a daily basis uh, in a very kind of conversational context, that it is utilised in the revival of other traditional practices, such as weaving and carving and song and dance and, and all that sort of thing. And that eventually that language uh, knowledge book, that dictionary and grammar becomes something that just sits on a bookshelf gathering dust while our language sustains itself as something that's a living, breathing part of our community's cultural fabric. Callum, thank you so much for being with us this evening and sharing this important work with us and really giving us some great insights into the importance of language revitalisation for a community and also the really intricate work involved in doing that. No worries, thank you. Anawan man Callum Clayton Dixon is a linguist and historian and a founding member of the Anawan Language Revival Program and he is the author of Surviving New England, A History of Aboriginal Resistance and Resilience Through the First 40 Years of the Colonial Apocalypse.